Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 John. If you're new to the Bible, you're going to find it nearly at the end. It's easy to miss because it is just one page. But if you find Revelation and just turn a couple pages left, you'll run into it. The little letter of 2 John. And uh, as uh, we begin, uh, let me read this short letter to you uh, aloud. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father, and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. In 1933, America was still reeling from the Great Depression. And on March 6th of 1933, the new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ordered that all banks must be closed for one week. Some of them were already closed because of the Depression, but he ordered them all closed. And he saw it as a stopgap measure to stabilize the economy. But many fear that on March 13th, when the banks reopened, there would be a run on the banks, leaving the nation in a worse condition than before he issued that decree. Well, on Sunday evening, March 12th, the night before the banks reopened, FDR hit the airwaves for the first of his fireside chats. With a soothing voice, he urged Americans to keep their money in the bank and not put it under their mattress, arguing it was, in fact, safer in the banks. And America believed him. They heeded the president's request, and the next Monday, they actually deposited more money in these banks than they withdrew. The commander-in-chief's words had had their intended effect. The New York Stock Exchange saw its largest one-day rise in over 50 years. And at the end of the day, the Dow Jones ticker read, happy days are here again. Those few words coming from the right man at the right time, they packed quite a punch. Second John, like a fireside chat, is a short message, but it too packs quite a punch. Second John was written by John, the apostle and author of the gospel according to John, Revelation, and of course, these three letters, first, second, and third John. The similarities between first John and second John are obvious. We might even call second John, first John in concentrate. John wrote this letter to a local church. He wrote this letter to a local church. He calls himself the elder, right? That's a biblical word for pastor. Uh, you might think of how uh, a well-known pastor might be known sort of globally as 
pastor fill-in-the-blank. Well, John was an apostle, a well-known and significant elder, the elder. He writes to the elect lady and her children, which was a euphemism for the local, a local church. By elect, John means churches are filled with people who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, before time began, Ephesians 1.4. Now, he might have used this phrase, uh, an unusual phrase, to protect the church from being identified during a time of persecution had someone gotten a hold of this little letter. Now, we talk today of sister churches, but we get that from passages like this. Look at verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, not a, not a biological sister, right? Not even a, an individual sister in the Lord, but a sister church. So the elect lady and her children, that's a church. Her sister is another church. I presume her sister is the church in Ephesus, where we think John spent many of his later years. Now, based on verse 4, it appears that John had, had come across some faithful church members from this elect lady. And it's possible that he received a report from them about what was going on in their church. And so he decided to write a letter to them and send it with those faithful members and bring it back to their church. And again, 2 John being that little letter. Very common size for a first century letter would have fit on a papyrus and uh, easily rolled up and uh, sent wherever it needed to go. Now, I want to share with you this. So today, how exciting. We get to cover an entire book of the Bible. That is so great. Next week, we do the same thing. And uh, I want to share. So you're going to get your, I don't know how many of you knew much about 2 John. It's kind of like, ah, 1 John took so much time, so little. How can it be that important? It's the word of God. It's here for a reason. God wanted us to have this truth in this way. It's not just the word of God for their day. It's the word of God for our day. And we get to wrap our mind around it all in one sermon. And I want to share with you three observations about 2 John. And I pray that God would use this letter to deepen your love for the church and for the church's head, Jesus Christ our Lord. So first, 2 John is radically church-centered. That's the first observation. 2 John is radically church-centered. Second, 2 John is radically gospel-centered. Radically gospel-centered. Third, 2 John is radically God-centered. Radically God-centered. So church, gospel, and God. First, 2 John is radically church-centered. Now consider the simple fact that John is writing to a local church. Right, that elect lady and her children. John is writing to a local church. It's easy to overlook that. We live in an age focused on the individual. Right? We, we, we often think of Christianity about me and my Bible, me and my walk with the Lord, me and my struggles and my difficulties, me and God's blessings in my life. But that's not entirely true. Christians are and have always been a community people. Right? It's why so many of the letters in the New Testament are written to not individuals. There are some written to individuals, but so many are written to churches. Second John is, in that sense, radically church-centered. But we see this in a number of different ways. See, for example, how John loves the church. See how he loves the church. Look again at, at verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, that's the church, whom I love in truth. They are a church that John loves in truth, in truth. Now, I take this to mean that he loves them sincerely, that he loves them deeply. In 1 John 3, 18, he wrote, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Not in word and talk but in deed and truth. So loving in truth there appears to be in contrast to loving in talk. He really loves them. It's not lip service. He genuinely loves them. Right? And it's so much easier for us to say, I love you, brother, than it is to, to mean it. We're to love in truth. His love is so great 
He wants to see them. He's not content to write. Verse 12, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. You know, in the Greek, it reads mouth to mouth. I want to talk to you mouth to mouth. He wants to join them. Shoulder to shoulder, face to face, mouth to mouth. This, this is love, right? It's, it's our goal. We're getting there, but it's our goal to be back in one room together. Face to face, mouth to mouth, right? I, I would rather not speak to you over the internet. Face to face, mouth to mouth. It's always been the desire of Christians, even when they had the technology of the papyrus, to be together. Now, you might be saying, well, of course John loved. You keep talking to me about love, but of course John loved. He's the elder. He's an apostle. But look at verse 1. John says to them, you are the people I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Right? All who know the truth, all who know the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, all of them love them. Right? Everyone who knows the truth of the gospel loves the elect lady and her children. And this is because Christians love Christians. Christian love, our love for one another, is not based on our productivity or our performance. It's not based on our gifting or our maturity. It's based on the answer to a simple question. Has that person been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? It's not about what that person does for you. It's not about how much you like that person. It's not about how gifted, how mature that person is, old believer, young believer. Has that person been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? And if so, John says, that's a person you are to love. John loves the church. John encourages the church. Look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, most every New Testament letter starts with a very similar greeting. It's usually some variation of, talking about a greeting to a letter, uh, grace and peace to you. That's the vast majority of the times, grace and peace to you. Standard way to open up a letter to a church or a Christian, grace and peace to you. So when, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he actually used the exact same words that John uses here. He uses grace, mercy, and peace to you. But grace and peace to you, grace, mercy, and peace to you. James, for some reason, just says greetings. I guess he was a get-to-the-point kind of guy. But that was unusual, right? Usually grace to you, peace to you, grace, mercy, and peace to you. But there's a difference between all those greetings and John's greeting here. See, in all the other, in all the other greetings, the author is expressing something that he basically wants to happen as they're reading the letter. So grace and peace to you as you read this letter. I want you to experience the grace of God, the peace of God. Right? That's a typical way for New Testament letters to be introduced. But here John does something different. He simply states, matter-of-factly, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Will be with us. That's a declaration. It's a promise. Right? John wanted to encourage them. He wants the church to know they have received the grace of God. That's God's generous salvation. They have received the mercy of God. That's salvation focused on the fact that you didn't deserve it. His mercy. They've received the, the peace of God. They have now reconciliation with God himself. And that grace and mercy and peace, John asserts, will be with them forever. Always going to be with them. That's the, the greeting of this book. So John is confident about the members of this local church, and so he encourages them, wanting them to be confident as well. Okay, now we're coming to this. Many of us are members of this local church, many more members of, of a local church. At this point, I, I need to make it clear 
But I need to tell you what I think you already know, that being a church member doesn't make you a Christian any more than, well, having stripes makes you a zebra. It doesn't work that way. But if a church membership process is healthy, in other words, if you're able to join a church only after, to some degree, that church has gotten to know you, individuals in that church have heard your testimony and seen and discerned evidence of God's grace and mercy and peace in your life, if that has happened, right, and if that's happened to you, then your membership in a local church ought to be an encouragement to you. Other brothers and sisters in your church can look at you and say, I see God's grace in your life. I see God's mercy in your life. I see God's peace in your life. And that's going to be with you always. But it's not that we're apostles. It's not that we, we know the future. But that is a blessing of being known by the body of Christ. So that when you are struggling with assurance, other brothers and sisters can come around you and say, the way, the way John says here, be encouraged. I see God's grace in your life. I see God's mercy in your life. I see God's peace in your life. And so you should see and receive those words as a gift from God. And it's one of the undervalued blessings of being part of a church. So long as you understand that that membership doesn't make you a Christian, but a healthy membership process is a means of grace in your life to provide you assurance in moments when you just might need it, when you're not thinking well about yourself. We see John loves the church. We see he encourages the church. We also see John challenges the church. Look at verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. All right, there's an ask. And the ask is in verse 5, is that we would love one another. John says it's no longer a new commandment. Right? This is simply the commandment that they heard when they heard the gospel, when they first heard the gospel, learned the gospel. I've said it many times in the past few weeks. Following Jesus and loving Jesus' people are two sides of the same coin. Right? This is the commandment they had from the beginning. Every Christian should have heard this from the very beginning. Following Jesus means loving Jesus' people. John is simply really reminding them of, of Jesus' words in John 13, 34, and 35. When it was a new commandment, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. New commandment then... No longer new commandment. They had it for years. They knew that this was part of what it meant to be a Christian. This kind of brotherly love, this kind of sisterly love, is a central theme of John's writings. We've heard it again and again. This kind of love is evidence of genuine salvation. Why does John say it again and again? Why the repetitive nature of this? Because if we're honest, it is hard to love brothers and sisters well. If we're going to be really honest, it is hard to love people that you've gotten to know really, really well. You've seen them at their best. You've seen them at your worst, at their worst. It's hard to love them then. What would John say to those of us struggling with love? Well, look at verse 6. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. Right, there is the commandment, and that's to love. That's the commandment, that we love our brothers and sisters. Right? But, but, but John says, and this is love, that we walk in his commandments, plural. Right, so, so love, a, a component of Christian love, is obeying all of Christ's other commandments. Commandments, plural. In other words... It's loving your brothers and sisters when you walk in holiness. You can't really love your brothers and sisters well 
if you're not walking in holiness. When you are having trouble loving someone, it's easy to think about their faults, the way they let you down, the way they hurt you. John says, be careful. Look at your own heart. Take the log out of your own eye, Matthew 7, 5. Right? Before, a, before a ship can sail the ocean, it has to leave its own port. Before you can love well, you've got to check your, your own heart. Are you walking in holiness? You can't love well, you can't love others well if you aren't drawing near to Christ yourself. I find this so interesting and counterintuitive. I don't know how often we think about love this way. We've heard a thousand times, I'm to love, I'm to love, I'm to serve others. We, we get that. But, but John says something more radical. If you're really going to love others, you've got to obey Christ's commandments. You cannot, you must not separate the two. So it must be true that if we are not pursuing a genuine, robust, personal, vibrant relationship with the Lord, that our neglect of God, our failure to have a warm relationship with the Lord is going to bleed over into our relationships with other people. That's got to be what John is saying here as he connects brotherly love with walking in holiness. In Proverbs 19.11 we read, it's your glory to overlook an offense. It's a glorious thing when a brother or sister overlooks an offense, a done wrong to him. We're told in 1 Peter 4.8 that love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Right? That love has the ability to help you embrace, care for, be warm towards someone who sinned against you because love is just so powerful, constantly pointing you to the work of Christ that you might see your friend or your brother through Christ tinted lenses. That's what Peter is saying. Love covers a multitude of sins. But the thing is, that's really hard to do, practically. It's loving, the Bible says, to accept people in their weakness, even in their sin. Doesn't mean we never rebuke. Doesn't mean we never warn, right? Sermon for another day. But this acceptance, this love can only be done when first we make sure we are keeping Christ's commandments. When we are walking in holiness. So if you've ever said, I do not know how I can overlook an offense. I don't know how I can, you know, I, I, can, I can cover their sin with my love. And John says, are you walking with the Lord? It's hard to love someone who sinned against you. It's impossible if you yourself aren't growing in holiness. So 2 John is radically church-centered, right? Christianity is to be lived out in community. Never easy, always complicated, but it's good to know you aren't alone, right? It's, it's good to be sharpened by men and women who are, who are running the race with you. We're fallen. We're weak. Sometimes we bite. But we are brothers and sisters purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And so we are a church. Okay? This is a radically church-centered letter. But that's not, not all. Another observation. Second, Second John is, is radically gospel-centered. Every year, uh, really around this time, I haven't done it yet, but I'll buy some annuals and plant them in pots in my backyard. And it's important to realize that the soil in those pots needs to be rich with nutrients. They kind of wear out as the season goes on. Right? Soil can lose the, the ability to, to give the, the, the life that these flowers need. So unless I am careful to replenish the soil every year, the flowers that I plant are going to languish and droop and die much sooner than they should. Flowers need good soil. Love needs the true gospel. It's as simple as that. John knew this. 
John saw false gospel being spread by false teachers in the first century. He knew that that false teaching would rob the church of love and ultimately of salvation itself. They were going around poisoning the soil of other churches that they visited. John knew that this teaching would so corrupt these churches and fill them with rivalry and dissent and envy. And hey, the greatest threat to a church's love is a false gospel. And this explains John's strong words there in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now he calls these false teachers deceivers and antichrists. They claimed to be Christian. That's that's where the deception comes in. They're deceiving people about what Christianity is. They're antichrists because they're, they're taking a Christian gospel, mutating it, and from within, fighting against Christ. They rose up from within, as we saw in 1 John. There's lots of false teaching in the world. There's false teaching that came up from within the church. We can think of the false teaching of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, the prosperity gospel, even Roman Catholicism. This false teaching began from within the body of Christ. Each of these movements started with some of the basic tenets or assumptions of Christianity, but twisted them just enough to lose the actual gospel. And I know it's not popular to say this. Most people who do believe in God believe we are all on different paths to God. God, they say, is standing at the top of a mountain, but there are a thousand different ways to reach the summit. That's the teaching of the world today. It's not John's teaching. It's not what he's saying here. It's not the message of Christianity. It never has been. So our goal, as I say this, cannot be popularity. Yes, we must be kind. Uh, We should be winsome in our proclamation of truth. We should do good works. Loved Sunday school last week, thinking about the benevolent ministries associated with the Metropolitan Tabernacle back in the 19th century. We should do good works. But we cannot budge from the capital T truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these false teachers rejected that gospel. They did it, verse 7, by denying that Jesus will return in the flesh. Their so-called gospel did not have a Jesus who came in the flesh or who would come again in the flesh. They did not have a God-man dying on a cross in the place of sinners like us. They denied Jesus' divinity. They denied that Jesus is God. They denied he went to the cross. And John knew that if their teaching spread, it would destroy the church like like a California wildfire. It would wreak havoc. And so he shoots off this letter. What should our response be? Living so much later than those who first read these words. We must profess the true gospel. Most importantly, we must profess the true gospel. The truth that God made you. God made everything, but God made you. And he made you the way he wanted you to be. But we are all born rejecting God, living life our own way, turning from God, following our own selfish desires. The Bible calls us sinners. Again, not a popular word, but a biblical word. But that's not the whole story. We deserve death and God's eternal wrath. But in his love, remember from 1 John, God is love. In his love, 
God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Jesus went into the world. And Jesus lived a perfect life, obeying the Father and all of the Father's commands, never doing or thinking or saying anything wrong, always loving, always obeying, never deserving to die. And yet Jesus didn't merely die, he died a criminal's death. He died a death whereby all the Jewish people would say you must be cursed. And in fact, he was cursed. Because when the God-man Jesus Christ hung on that tree, all of the sins of God's people were placed upon Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness was placed upon them. And salvation was purchased by the blood of Christ. And as we celebrated on Easter to validate the fact that he, he is in fact God and that everything he said about himself is true, Jesus rose from the dead and now everyone on the face of the planet is charged by God to repent and believe this gospel that I just briefly shared with you. This is the only way to be saved. This is the gospel that we profess at Mount Vernon. And I'm asking you to profess that gospel. I'm asking you to embrace this as capital T truth. To believe that regardless of what is looming large in your life, job, family, kids, COVID, whatever, that nothing would be bigger in your life. And that you would profess nothing with deeper sincerity than the gospel that I just shared with you Mark my words, it's not a Baptist gospel, not a Presbyterian gospel, not a Methodist gospel, not an Anglican gospel. This is just the gospel. It's what Christians have believed for all time, as we confessed just a few moments ago in the Nicene Creed. Let's profess the true gospel. And brothers and sisters, let's persevere in the true gospel. Look at verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. That's the warning, a strong warning. Don't let your guard down. What makes this so interesting is, is John would never have written these words had he not realized our, our temptation to drift away or even reject that gospel that I just shared with you. And were you to drift away, and were you to reject it, you would lose, in a sense, you would prove that you never truly knew Christ. You see, John and other gospel teachers in his day labored. They worked to make the gospel clear. And they hoped to see God build a church filled with born-again believers, but... We have no place in such a church if we don't cling to the gospel that they preached. If we don't persevere in the faith, in that sense, we lose what we thought we had. And we will not hear on the day of judgment, well done, good and faithful servant, which is ultimately the Christian's reward. Now, John is not teaching that those who are truly saved can lose their salvation. There are too many other passages in the Bible that make it abundantly clear that those who are truly saved will never lose their salvation. Jesus himself said to the disciples that no one can snatch them out of his hand. Once you're in Jesus' hand, you can't be snatched out of Jesus' hand, John 10, 28. But just as there are deceivers, right, these false teachers, these antichrists, there are the deceived. There are those who think they are Christian when in fact they really aren't. And John is warning us not to assume we are true Christians when we're not persevering in the faith. And in one sense, that's what this whole sermon series in 
1 John and 2 John and 3 John has been about knowing you know Jesus. Like, Aaron, that scares me. How can I know I know Jesus? Read 1 John. If you don't have time for that, read 2 John. Right? Love the brothers. Keep the commandments. Right? Walk, walk in holiness. Believe the gospel. Right? There is evidence. This is evidence of genuine salvation. But, as I've tried to say in each message, our security, our confidence in our salvation isn't finally in the fruit that we bear. It's in the truth of God's word. God's word says God will not lose one of his children. We persevere in the faith because God keeps us in the faith. One statement about this penned many years ago, as you're about to see, uh, puts it marvelously. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it slowly. It's from a statement of faith written in another century. Listen carefully to what the Bible says about what God does with those who are truly his. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, that is Christ. Those whom God effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock, which by faith they are fastened upon. They shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation. They being engraved upon the palms of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. And brothers and sisters, that's my only explanation for the truth of verse 3 and the truth that we find here in verse 8. How can John speak with such confidence about the future of the church? Because he knew God keeps his people who are engraved in the palms of Jesus' hands. And yet that truth does not rob us of the requirement and joy of fighting the good fight of the faith. And we see all of that going on in 2 John. We persevere in the true gospel through faith in Christ. Let's profess the true gospel. Let's persevere in the true gospel. Let's protect. Let's protect the true gospel. Look at verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Look, if the elect lady and her children in verse 1 is a church, then the house in verse 10 is wherever that church gathers for corporate worship. In the first century, receiving and greeting a teacher in corporate worship was a, a public affirmation, a, a stamp of approval. Well, I don't think much has changed. Right? John says we must not do that with false teachers. We must not embrace false teachers and say, would you please give a message to Mount Vernon? No, don't do that. Don't receive them that way. Don't welcome them that way. You know, protect the church by protecting the gospel, by not inviting and putting up people who are going to speak things that are contradicting the gospel that we treasure. So at Mount Vernon, one of the ways we do this very practically is by basically drawing on our own members to teach us. I mean, 99% of our teaching is done by members of Mount Vernon who uh, we've, we've gotten to know, we've, we've heard their testimony, we've seen their faithfulness. We haven't just heard their words, but by and large, we've seen them live out their God, the gospel in their lives. And uh, no, no church is perfect. Uh, people can be deceptive. 
But over time, as we get to know one another, we trust one another to teach our children. It's why Kyle just didn't say, hey, come and teach our kids. He said, hey, want to teach our kids? You have to go to this meeting. You know, why do I have to go? I mean, come on. What is this? It's a church with commands from the Bible not to welcome those who speak things that are false. So we pull from our own members. And even then, we strive to get to know them well. Now, look, do we bring in other teachers like Alex DePrima? Yeah, that was great. You know, a brother that, that I've gotten to know, uh, a brother, literally a brother of another brother in the church. We do that at times. And we're, we're benefited by teachers from other churches. But even then, we need to be careful, don't we, to make sure that the people who are, are preaching from our pulpit or teaching in uh, any special event we have are those who, who know and cling to the gospel. Because this is how the devil does his work, by getting us attracted to teachers who are not committed to the truth. Now, all Christians, so that's largely the job of the elders. You should pray that the elders are wise in this way. Uh, as they seek to protect the gospel of Mount Vernon. But you need to recognize, Christian, your own responsibility in this area as well. How do you protect the gospel? You know, one way you do it is by affirming Scripture, these 66 books of the Bible, as the sole sufficient word of God. You protect the gospel as you evaluate everything I say, anything you hear by the word of God. That's your role. That's your responsibility. How well do you know this book, the Bible? Study it. Eat it. Digest it. Pray that you would know it well. Pray that you would start thinking God's thoughts after him. If that's you, you will have a hard time being fooled. We've seen that Second John is radically church-centered and Gospel-centered. Third, Second John is radically God-centered. It's easy for us to take things for granted, isn't it? Uh, I took meeting as a church for granted for, I think, all of my life. I took a simple thing as being together in one room with brothers and sisters. I took that for granted. Uh, we take a view for granted. We take our, our friends for granted, our family for granted. We take verses of the Bible for granted too. Look at verse 3 again. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son in truth and love. This greeting is very similar to other greetings, as I mentioned before, that bring up grace and mercy and peace. It's also similar in the sense that other greetings argue that blessings do come from the Father and from the Son. Now imagine for a moment that you are a first century Jew and you grew up going to or at least hearing about the temple where sacrifices were made to God. And you grew up learning that blessings come from God. Where do blessings come from? You knew blessings come from God. They come from God, the Father. Grace comes from God. Mercy comes from God. Peace comes from God. And you know God. God is, you would have known Isaiah 57, 15 from that. You know God is high and lifted up. I mean, God is, is transcendent. He's the creator. And blessings come from him. He is Yahweh. Though you wouldn't have said that. You wouldn't have used the word Yahweh. He was too high for that. And in walks John. And John says, all these blessings come from the Father and the Son. They don't only come from the Father. They don't only come from the Son. They come from the Father and the Son. They come from both. It, it happens on occasion that a Menikoff child will receive a gift from a from us, from a parent, from their parents, the child will proceed to thank the parent that he or she believes had most to do with procuring, deciding, choosing, giving that gift. At that moment, 
The other parent might grow indignant. Wait a second. That's not from me. That's from us. It's from both of us. Give credit where credit is due. Word to the wise. The deceiver, the antichrist, would rob the son of the credit he deserves. The deceiver would deny that Jesus is God in the flesh, truly God and truly man. And to refute this claim in no uncertain terms, at the start of the letter, John points out that grace, mercy, and peace don't just come from the Father, but from the Father and the Son equally. And here's the clincher, which is to say they are equally God. The Father choosing a people for himself, a church for his own glory, the Father ordaining the plan of our salvation, the Father sending the Son into the world, knowing full well what that meant, the Son heeding the Father's command, the Son obeying every letter of the law, the Son enduring the agony of the cross. Why? For the joy set before him and for the love of the Father who sent him. by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week, Alex pointed out that God dwells in eternity. And he said that this is one way of saying God is out of our reach. I loved his honesty. Do you remember that? Like he said, I don't know what that means. Like, thank the Lord, there's another pastor who doesn't know what it all means. But he knew the implication. He knew that the implication is God is out of our reach. We cannot fully understand him. Can anyone here fully understand God? Let the record show no hands were raised. Why would God save sinners? Why would God allow so much evil to persist and yet promise a glorious future for all his children? Right? How do you explain the Trinity? In a mystery beyond, beyond our comprehension, the Father and the Son, and yes, the Spirit, partner together in divine union so that we, church, might be his treasured possession. A people who exist to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, so you've got that in your mind. I hope that's clear. Like, I hope you don't, like, stop at the greetings in the New Testament and then let your jaw drop. Like, this is important. The Spirit is saying something important about the Father and about the Son. He is mysterious, high and lifted up. But then look at verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead, now those are the false teachers. What are false teachers doing? Right there, in this case, they're taking some biblical truth and then they're going on ahead and denying some of it, twisting it. Right? It's not a good thing in this case to go on ahead, just stay behind. If you're a Christian, it's good to stay behind. Verse 9 everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. All right, what is it that the deceived, those who go ahead, what is it that they don't have? They don't have God. They don't know him. They aren't known by him. They have no share in his salvation. They are strangers to his grace. He's not their God. They're not his children. In John's words, they don't have God. Now contrast that with those who abide in Christ's teaching. Contrast that with those who profess and persevere in and protect the gospel. What do they have? They have God. They have him, father and son. Let that sink in. They have God. The one who dwells in the high and holy place, the one who dwells in eternity is their God. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Right? God is not a souvenir to be purchased at the gift shop and brought home and displayed on your shelf. He's not a painting you hang on your wall. You don't have him the way you have anything else. You don't have God the way you have a house or a pet. He's not an object to be owned. He's the creator of all, right? He's the, the judge of the nations. 
He's untouchable. And what makes it all the more amazing then is that we are able biblically to say we have God. When Christ is your Savior, when you abide in his word, when your sins have been atoned for, when your stains are covered, when your debt is paid, then you can say with complete confidence that God, Father and Son, is yours. And perhaps this is the New Testament equivalent of God dwelling with the lowly and contrite in heart. The God of the universe becomes the God of the sinner. God, Christian, is yours. Now, this sounds too good to be true. Christian, God is yours. He is on your side. He is for you. He is not against you. He is not just your master. He is your father. Enjoy this truth. Rest in it. God is with you. To the non-Christian, all I can tell you is that God can be yours. To, to the non-Christian, to someone today who's here, who understands himself or herself not to be a Christian, it all may seem so strange and foreign. All I can point to is the Bible and have you observe that God can be yours. He's not stingy with his love. He's not tricky. He's not like an escape room that you have little chance of solving and I have zero chance of solving. Friends, God has made the way clear. You can find him in and through and because of Jesus Christ. But there's no other way. Jesus is the road to the summit, to the mountaintop. He's the key to every puzzle. Profess Jesus is truly God and man. Profess Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you and rose from the dead for your justification. Turn away from your sin. Trust in him. And the Bible says God is yours. Can you believe that? That's 2 John. It's a little book, isn't it? But it packs a punch. Maybe the shortest book in the Bible. Radically church-centered. Radically gospel-centered. Radically God-centered. And we should be too. Look, in 1933, when FDR gave that talk with just a few words... With just a few words, he got an entire nation to trust him, leading them out of the Great Depression. In about A.D. 33, Jesus did something so much greater. The word of God himself climbed up onto a cross and delivered a message that will never be outshined. And the message is that he died and rose for sinners. He died so we could trust him. This is our gospel. In Christ, you can have God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that truth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank and praise you for your majestic union and the way through the gospel of Christ, you invite us to share in yourself. And we pray that in light of so many distractions, in light of so many satanic attacks against your truth, in light of ignorance, which often seems to keep us from knowing what's right, oh, Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would strive after you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.